Mario Small is the Ketelet Professor of Social Science in the Department of Sociology at Columbia University. One of the most preeminent sociologists of his generation, Mario is an elected member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the American Academy of Political and Social Sciences, and most recently, of the National Academy of Sciences, one of the most coveted academic associations in the world. A sociologist whose work focuses on urban poverty, social inequality, personal networks, and the relationship between quantitative and qualitative methods, Mario is the author of several half-breaking books. Among them are Villa Victoria, The Transformation of Social Capital in a Boston Barrio, and Unanticipated Gains, The Origins of Network Inequality in Everyday Life. Both books received several awards, including the prestigious C. Wright Mills Award from the American Sociological Association. Mario is also the co-author of a recently published book that explores how social scientists should go about evaluating ethnographic and interview research. I invited Mario to the Dean's Table to reflect on whether being born and raised in Panama shaped his insights as a sociologist, to discuss how and when he became interested in being a sociologist, and to talk about his intellectual contributions to the study of urban poverty, personal networks, and qualitative methods. Mario, welcome to the Dean's Table. Thank you very much, Fred. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Mario, you were born and raised in Panama. Yes. Panama City, I believe. Yes. Um, could you share with our listeners your experience with growing up there? Yeah. So I uh, I was born and raised entirely in Panama from Panamanian parents who were children of Panamanian grandparents all across the board. So um, my parents uh, both worked. Uh, they both worked actually for the U.S. government, for the Department of Defense in Panama. Because the canal was there at the time. And the... Uh, the canal infrastructure, uh, which at the time had been leased to the United States, uh, and uh, for the operation of the canal and also for the uh, establishment of several military bases just within the canal zone area, uh, that infrastructure needed that a lot of civilian support. And so there were a lot of civilians from Panama working there. And so my my father was an architect, and he worked uh, as an architect for the Department of Defense, and my mother was a human resources specialist, and she also worked there. And um, uh, we lived uh, in a working-class neighborhood called Cerro Viento, which is still there, and um, which uh, you know had a combination of you know teachers and laborers and small business people and so on. And it was also the case that um, I grew up uh, on a street that, uh, by chance, just had a lot of boys. So in my household, uh, before my parents split up, it was just my brother and me. Um, next door, there were three boys uh, our ages. Uh, so one was my age, another one was my brother's age, and the other one was a little younger. Across the street, there were also three boys. Uh, my age, my brother's age, and one a little younger. Uh, next door to that, there were two boys. On my other side, there was one boy. Uh, a couple doors down across the street, there were two boys, then another boy, then another <laughs> boy. So there were a lot of boys growing up in that right. neighborhood. You can imagine all the, all the things <laughs> yeah. that went on on that street. And you can imagine. And, you know, in Panama, Panama's hot. 
and mm-hmm. uh, the roofs of the house of the houses, at least in this neighborhood, in working class neighborhoods, are made of zinc, and so it's very hot inside uh, in the summer, mm-hmm. actually year round, and so we spent a lot of time outside. And so a lot of my childhood and many of my childhood memories have to do with uh, large groups of boys spending a lot of time uh, playing sports and getting into trouble and uh, learning how to, you know, figure your own life out just with other boys and realizing you're really good at some things and not as good at others and getting picked on and having to defend yourself, uh, getting teased and living with it, teasing others. So it was a it was a it was a you know a long uh, socialization process by my peers that uh, I very much uh, remember fondly uh, many years later. Right. So you provide a very thick description of of that aspect of your life of growing up in Panama City. Um, just thinking back um, through that example, or perhaps others, how did that experience or others shape? if at all, your approach to the study of sociology? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, You know, there's a nice old paper by Nisbet and Wilson, psychologists, that argue that um, we have very limited insight into our own motives. And C. Wright Mills said a similar kind of thing. And actually, C. Wright Mills, the sociologist who was at Columbia for many years, uh, said a similar thing about, um, as as an interviewer, and, uh, and knowing that, I'm a little hesitant to make a connection between right. uh, my prior experience and my, uh, and my own, uh, motivating my own decisions as a scholar. But having said that, I mean, it's, it's very hard to not at least draw some kinds of connections. So one of the things that um, has certainly uh, emerged, I suppose, as a result of my childhood is a lot of exposure to inequality and, uh, and difference. So... Um, I, I, as a child, I lived in this working class neighborhood and I went to school in an Episcopal school. And um, the Episcopal church in Panama is very different from the Episcopal church in the U.S. Uh, so in Panama, every Episcopal I knew was black. Um, it was a black church. I, I actually mm-hmm. didn't know there were white Episcopals until I came to the U.S., <laughs> <laughs> whereas here it's almost the opposite. Um, and, uh, uh, and so, I mean, it's just a very different kind of church. But the schools themselves uh, are very much almost, I guess, like Catholic schools here. Uh, so there are good schools, often uh, children of the elites in their schools there and so on. And so uh, my school had, uh, it was a very small school, K through 12 uh, was about not even 500 students. Uh, But it had many children of the Panamanian elites. Most of them were not Episcopal. And so I I was. And so when I went to school, I I saw, and when I went to my friends' houses, not everybody, but some of them lived in these huge houses in these very ritzy neighborhoods and so on. And, uh, you know, I went back home, took off my uniform, put on my street clothes, and went and hung out on the streets and played basketball or soccer or baseball with sticks and and so on. And so I had a very, very, uh, my whole childhood exposure to a very different class context. And that certainly uh, got me interested in the relationship between neighborhoods and class and socialization and in class difference and very much interested in polarization, what we now call polarization, but at the time I would have just described as very different perceptions of the world across very different parts of the socioeconomic distribution. 
And um, so that for sure uh, played some role. I also got interested in segregation, I would say, partly. And again, you know, who knows how much, um, you know, my motives did in fact unfold, as I believe they did. But um, the, you know, so I described uh, myself as having grown up in Panama from parents who were born in Panama, uh, from grandparents who themselves had been born in Panama as well. But in spite of that, um, everybody uh, in my family uh, eventually, so the generation above my grandparents, they're all from the West Indies. So from Trinidad, Jamaica, Barbados primarily. These were laborers who had come over to Panama to, uh, uh, to help build the canal first and then maintain it. Uh, so my grandfather, for example, was a dredger. Um, uh, my grandparents on the other side worked in the military bases in the canal zone, etc. My whole family, uh, essentially, in part because of how much discrimination there was in Panama itself, worked essentially for the U.S. government. And the interesting thing about that is that in spite of the fact that all four of my grandparents were born in Panama, all of them not only spoke English overwhelmingly as their first language, West Indian English, but I would say either only passably or sometimes even less so spoke Spanish because they grew up in highly segregated neighborhoods for canal zone workers. Interesting. Even their children, so my father didn't even start learning Spanish, even though he was the child of people who had already been born in Panama and himself was born in Panama. He had only, he really only started learning Spanish when he was in about third grade, when finally the canal zone started getting required to teach Spanish to the children. And so when you think about uh, segregation and the extent to which linguistic isolation can manifest itself so powerfully generation by generation, it's, it's hard not to think about now here in the United States how segregation manifests itself, manifested itself differently. Right. And so some of my interest in you know, residential segregation and race in cities, I'm sure, has something to do uh, with that experience. Right. So those are some of the ways. Uh, you know, I would say, I guess the last thing I would say is, um, even though my, my scholarly interest and in f- formal interest in network analysis didn't come until much, much later, decades later, the seeds were certainly planted, as I could see both the interpersonal network dynamics that were unfolding in the neighborhoods and in the schools that I grew up in. Right. Right. So you went for, to warmer climates in the United States and landed in the Midwest, um, Minnesota. Yep. Uh, <laughs> which is quite cooler, um, yeah. actually. Um, and you attended uh, Carleton College. Yes. What was that experience like? Yeah, so uh, it's funny you mentioned culture uh, because the truth is um, I didn't mind the weather. It, I mean, it's you know, I'm not going to say I loved being in you know 10 degree below weather, <laughs> but what I'm saying is that when I think about what was hardest about Minnesota and Carleton, the weather wasn't it. It was really the culture shock. Mm. What I now need to call culture shock. At the time, I just thought of why is everybody so different uh, from anything I've experienced. Right. And uh, you know the so just to give you some context, the so Carleton College, it's a great college, 
academically fantastic college located in a small town called Northfield, Minnesota, which for some reason has two colleges, Carleton and St. Olaf. And what was interesting about Northfield, Minnesota, is this, at the time, it was a you know one-street town, one-street light, a uh, couple banks, one supermarket, this kind of thing, two, three bars. His claim to fame was that it was the place where Jesse James, the old bank robber in the 1800s, had been defeated. And it was also an extremely Scandinavian town, a very, very kind of Nordic culture. So uh, in this context, I've definitely stood out. Uh, you know, my accent, my looks, my color, my clothes, you know, um, everything. And it, it was a difficult adjustment. I won't lie. It was definitely right. difficult. Right. So you majored in, in sociology yes. and anthropology yes. um, at Carleton. Um, how did you go about choosing yeah, that major? That's a good question. Majors? <laughs> so if, if, you know, if you grew up in a place like Panama, at least the way I did, the way it worked is if you were good in school, and especially if you were good in math, and phys- so math and physics are my favorite subjects, um, I actually took sociology in, co- in high school one year, and I didn't like it, <laughs> which is very funny in retrospect. Um, but if you, were, if you had some capacity, what you did is you just went into engineering. And the real only issue at the time was what kind of engineering I would do. So I was very interested in systems like computer science and systems engineering. You know, my brother went on to become uh, mechanical engineering. Mm-hmm. My other brother, so I, my, after my uh, father remarried, he had two more boys. So my the third in line, he ended up doing robotics. <laughs> and then <laughs> the one after that, he was into video game design. That was, was the, you know. So, so you're the outlier. Yeah. So I went to study computer science. And I did. And... Um, or at least that was that that was what I declared as my likely major. But I I took a sociology course on a whim, uh, with a professor named Nader Saidi, uh, who's an Iranian social theorist who had studied at the University of Wisconsin. And I just loved it. I mean, it was just completely eye-opening the idea that you could perceive the world through very different categories that by their very nature would force you to see things that you hadn't seen before. Uh, It was really social theory. And, you know, I started taking more courses in theory. I took a lot of courses in philosophy. Um, And just the idea of thinking about the world as something that could be understood more or less effectively as a function of the quality of the categories you had in your mind. Mm -hmm. It's just fascinating to me. So I just ended up majoring in sociology and anthropology. There it was a double major, and there were theory courses in both sociology and anthropology, and I just ate them up, you know. Um, Nader Saidi and Jay Levy, uh, Jim Fisher, uh, Bev Nagel. I still remember my professors very clearly because wow. they had such a big impact on how I thought about the world. Did they say to you that you should go go on to graduate school and get a Ph.D., or...? And so that's one question. And the second question is, is that how did you go back to your family of scientists <laughs> and engineers to say, mom and dad, I'm going to be a sociologist? Yeah. So I got, well, that was funny. So I, um, so I was the first. Uh, mm-hmm. So I was kind of lucky in that way. Plus, 
you know, um, we didn't have that much money. So when I left, it was a one-way ticket, and I wasn't sure when I was coming back. And so I kind of had the distance to help me. There were no cell phones at the time. <laughs> Every time I called, I'd have to go to the public phone and the down the and you know put in my quarters you know mm-hmm. for a quick few minute call. And I guess letters and postcards didn't quite convey that. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. They get a letter every now and then. Mm-hmm. But when I, you know, I'll I'll give uh, I'll give my parents credit for that. When I finally decided I wanted to major in sociology, uh, well, I should say sociology and anthropology. I'm not going to say uh, they were thrilled, but I distinctly remember. Well, I won't say who uh, to protect the innocent, but one parent saying, "Well, uh, you're not going to make a lot of money, but you're going to help people, and that's good too." Mm-hmm. And that is when I realized they thought it was social work. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so they were not thrilled. But um, and uh, but two, I think two things helped. One is um, uh, that um, it was clear I really wanted this because I just kept taking course after course after course after course after reading, reading, reading. I had it's funny when I was in high school I wasn't much of a reader. Even growing up, I I, I liked math. I like chemistry, I like physics, I like playing with numbers, I like programming, I like engineering books. I wasn't much to sit down and read a novel. I mean, I like going out and playing sports and being out with my friends, uh, but I, I just didn't have the patience to sit. Uh, and that changed uh, once I got introduced to social theory. I mean, I was reading volumes upon volumes upon volumes. Um, and so it was very clear that I love this. And so by the time you'd asked whether the faculty encouraged me to do a PhD, not really. They didn't really have to. I didn't know. I didn't really know what a PhD was. Um, I just knew I wanted more schooling, which it turns out in retrospect was not a very thoughtful way to approach the PhD program. But I, um, so I, I applied right after. I mean, in the middle of my junior year, I applied to multiple programs, and I got into, I first got into Berkeley on a very nice uh, scholarship, and so then I called my parents, and then they were thrilled. (laughs) That took a lot of the sting off of uh, (laughs) us. Yeah. But you didn't go to Berkeley, though. No. I ended, it's funny, I I was pretty sure I was just going to go straight there. And um, by the end of my time in college, I knew I wanted to um, live in a small city. And, um, you know, the small cities that had the strongest programs were Boston, um, or Harvard and Boston, and Berkeley and San Francisco. So it was really between those two. And I, you know, again, I'd be lying if I said that I was very thoughtful or strategic about the process. Oh, that's interesting. You end up working, (laughs) being a professor at Harvard. But so you went there. And so who did you work with? And how how did you decide to write a dissertation on urban poverty? Oh, the last one's easy. So I went there and I hated it. And, um, I, you know, I, I didn't fit in socially. I didn't fit in intellectually. I thought it was too professionally oriented. I just didn't understand graduate school. And I came in thinking, oh, everybody just wants to come here and read more Foucault or read more Max Weber or read more Derrida or whatever it is and just talk. 
And I just didn't realize that that is not the model experience, especially at that institution. It's a little more common elsewhere. Um, and so it was difficult for me to adjust. Um, but the And so by the end of the my second year, I was pretty sure I wanted to leave. And, um, and it was not, I mean, I was doing very well academically. I just didn't like it socially. So I, I published my second year paper in a good journal. And um, in theory and society, that was my first publication in 1999, I believe. Uh, uh, social, uh, sociology of Knowledge paper. Um, and uh, Kathy Newman, who was also a longtime Columbia faculty member in anthropology for many years, uh, had just left Columbia for Harvard in 1998. And um, she had started a program in inequality and social policy. And the, the way they described the program, it sounded like a dream place for people who are just interested in ideas and all of this stuff. And so I thought, well, I'll do that program if I can. And if I get in, I'll stay. And, you know, I got in. And more importantly, um, a, a faculty member who could kind of tell I wasn't happy recommended I go have a chat with Kathy Newman. And this was in the, towards the end of my second year. Nobody knew I wanted to leave because they thought, well, he's doing great on paper. He must love it. But I had a long chat with Kathy Newman, in fact, and uh, she was fantastic. I was like, I can connect to this person. She was thoughtful. Turns out she had been a philosophy major, but was very interested in, in social inequality. And she was one of the first people I had met who I could see as a role model, as a person. Uh, which I had not experienced enough. And so then I thought I'll stay. And so I stayed in a couple of more years, and I still hated it. <laughs> so, But but um, an opportunity came up, um, and uh, I, I'll spare you the details, but it occurred to me that I could move away and move from Cambridge, which I didn't like, to Boston, uh, and live in a racially diverse community near a probably Puerto Rican housing project and do research in a space that feels more comfortable than Boston did at the time. Wow. So this is how you just, you, you oh, yeah. started your, your <laughs> yes. dissertation, which ended up as part of your, as part of your first book. Um, so you did field research, um, conducting uh, ethnography as, as a part of your dissertation. Correct. Um, did you face any challenges in the field? Um, yeah, I did. But I have to say the challenges all were all dwarfed in comparison to everything else. So socially, I just fit in. And it was great. And that just made a lot of things a lot easier. Why do you think you you fit in? Well, everybody was Puerto Rican, and I'm Panamanian, so we all spoke the same language. And we're all Caribbean Latinos, which means, I mean, I didn't look that different from a lot of people. Right. I like the same food. I eat primarily rice, for example, just like everybody else. You know, uh, we all listen to the same music. Um, you know, we all, um, you know... A lot of our upbringings actually weren't that different. I mean, this was a low-income housing project. I didn't grow up in a housing project. As I said, I grew up in a working-class neighborhood. But a lot of the games and the experiences of kids and the outdoor life were very, very similar. Um, in fact, the, what I liked most about fieldwork was being outside all the time, and just like I was when I was a kid. 
So it was really primarily social. I mean, I came up with, a, of course, intellectual justification. There was interested in neighborhood poverty. I was interested in inequality, et cetera. But the truth is that the primary thing I got out of, that I wanted to get out of it, was to get out of Cambridge and spend some time in the neighborhood. It's interesting how you sort of fell into that, yeah. that project. I, I would have thought it was, was purely strategic. No. Uh, but <laughs> I guess not. But things sort of happen that way. So. I'm the least strategic sociologist that you'll ever meet. <laughs> I'm probably up there. Yeah, it's terrible. Right. So let's switch gears just just a bit. You, you started your first position as a professor um, at Princeton. And during your stint there, your first book was published. Um, the title of that book is uh, Villa Victoria, which is the community, I guess, you just told us about. That's it. correct, yeah. Uh, Villa Victoria, the transformation of social capital in a Boston barrio. The book has been described as a sociological study that challenges much of the traditional wisdom about the dynamics of ghetto life, unquote. Tell our listeners what traditional wisdom about urban poverty, your book challenges. Yeah. So when I was part of that inequality program I mentioned earlier, I read a lot of work on American cities. And one of the faculty members, uh, William Giles Wilson, who made a big impact on me, was part of that group. And he, and he was on my committee, and he had spent a lot of time doing work uh, at the University of Chicago and writing about the city on the basis of what he'd experienced. And many of the works that we read were by a group of people who, it turns out, had all studied at the University of Chicago. Right. People like Doug Massey, uh, Robert Sampson, uh, Bill Wilson himself, and many others. Your listeners may not know this, but over the course of the 80s and 90s, the University of Chicago was, without a doubt, the most important place in the country, possibly the world, to study urban questions. The sociology department at the University of Chicago was the very first one in the mm-hmm. country. Mm-hmm. In the 1890s, it ran and still runs the one of the premier journals in the discipline, the American Journal of Sociology. Right. It, uh, it was the site of several of the early urbanists who were trying to understand at the turn of the 19th to 20th century how cities were evolving as a result of uh, migration from other countries, migration from the South by African Americans, and so on. And so I was very exposed to this work. And uh, I went to Via Victoria, uh, having read all of this stuff. Via Victoria is that neighborhood in Boston. And the neighborhood didn't look anything like what I had read in those books. And people did not behave like anything like I had read in those books. And a lot of what I said in those books just didn't ring true at all. And it turns out a lot of it had to do with the fact that those books had used Chicago expressly as a laboratory to understand the city. And Chicago was increasingly becoming an outlier in American cities in a whole bunch of respects. So more depopulation than on poor neighborhoods on average, uh, uh, more scarcity of establishments, harder to find a grocery store, a convenience store, more isolation, more removal from the rest of the city. It was just very different from what I saw in Boston. And so even a lot of the terms, social isolation, depopulation, et cetera. You can sort of imagine the picture you get when you think about these neighborhoods. You or, the, or the male marriageable pool, as William yes. Julius Wilson talked about mm-hmm. in his book on uh, urban poverty. 
Exactly. A lot of these ideas just didn't ring true. And so rather than ignore them, I just spent a lot of time trying to figure out why. And I ended up writing a book that was essentially a, a critique book saying, you know, we need to pay a lot more attention to what's happening in different cities other than Chicago because we're going to see that, you know, a lot of people just aren't isolated in that way, for example. Um, so let me step back a little bit. Um, one of the core ideas in in the literature at the time was that if you lived in a poor neighborhood because uh, the black middle class had departed from many of the central neighborhoods in the country and left behind the more poor, predominantly African-American population, many poor neighborhoods were essentially depopulated and socially isolated. Well, Villa Victoria, separate from the fact that it wasn't predominantly black, um, but that had not been a historical trajectory. It was actually a very high-density area rather than an area that was depopulated because nobody left. People were trying to get into it because it was right in the middle of the city of Boston in one of the most prime uh, pieces of real estate in the city, in the South End. It's ex- I mean, right now, the South End, you know, if you tried to buy a condo in the South End, it would cost you a couple million dollars. Uh, all around Via Victoria, there are multi-million dollar condos, and, then in, and, and Via Victoria itself is a public housing project. Uh, where you pay a third of your income in rent, uh, regardless of what your rent is, of what your income is, excuse me. And so th- there were many other ways, but that and, and in other ways, I just saw that uh, what I was reading just wasn't making sense, and I thought we need to think about cities very differently. And here again, my experience at Carleton shaped how I wrote because what I thought was important was reshaping the categories we were using to understand the city. So you may have anticipated one question I do have, and I'm very curious about. And so you noted already that the city of Chicago is best known for research on urban poverty, uh, mostly because of the University of Chicago's uh, sociology department's um, work on urban poverty. How important do you think focusing your research in Boston, or to say it another way, or think about it in a different way, um, a city other than Chicago offered a different perspective to debates about urban poverty? So just to offer some additional context to my question, as you know, the studies of urban poverty sort of began or flourished um, in the 1990s, but they're also centered mostly on the African-American population, with a particular focus, again, on Chicago. So if you had done a similar study, the one you did in Boston, um, in a Puerto Rican neighborhood, sort of like Chicago's Humboldt Park, which is north, um, on the north side of the city, would that poor community look more like Villa Victoria in Boston or the poor communities on the south and west side of Chicago? Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I would say it's a mix. So it's partly a mix because it's not in the south side or the west side, or not the kind of the west side as we think about it. Um, uh, and and so in that sense, it would look different from the African American communities in the far that are also kind of moderate to high poverty in the south side of Chicago. It would also look uh, 
similar in many respects to Villa Victoria in that a lot of, in fact, I know this, a lot of the local establishments are very much culturally centered. We go back to the idea of culture. They're very culturally centered or culturally focused on the interests of, I would say, not just Puerto Ricans, but Caribbean Latinos broadly. So you can buy plantains pretty easily. You get rice anywhere. You can get rice and beans in any restaurant, uh, etc. You can buy mofongo. Uh, you can eat acapurias, whatever it is. And so you can find foods and products that are going to be of interest to this particular population, just as it would in Boston. But but it would also be uh, quite different from Boston and perhaps more similar to the south side of Chicago in other ways. So uh, the the physical landscape in which people live does affect relations. So for your listeners who may not have had a lot of experience with Boston and Chicago... Um, Chicago blocks are quite long. So in New York City, there's 20 blocks to a mile. In Chicago, there's only eight blocks to a mile. So each block is much longer. Um, Chicago is a younger city than either Boston or New York. So it was built in the middle of the 19th century. That's when it grew. Uh, And it grew essentially in kind of marshy land that was filled in, uh, in the plains, and so there's no hills, there's nothing like that, but very flat. Um, it's very flat, and there's a lot of expansion space. And so neighborhoods are kind of expansive. Streets are wider, sidewalks are wider, just kind of more space. And so because there's more space, uh, there's more possibility for distinct neighborhood cultures that are separate from one another. You can just, in a pretty broad area, concentrate a few people and sort of create a local culture. So there's that. And then just the way the city's organized or an alderman, an alderwoman. Chicago is very much a neighborhood-like city, much more neighborhood-focused than other cities have been in. And that permeates all neighborhoods. And so, um, and even more than in Boston. So Villa Victoria itself is a housing project and people think of it that way and it's distinct from its surrounding areas, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh but it's quite small. It's certainly smaller than the Columbia campus. It's a very small neighborhood. You 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 know walk a mile and you're in a totally different neighborhood. In in Chicago, you can walk several miles and still be in the same neighborhood. Right. And in the south of, side of Chicago, you can walk miles upon miles upon miles and see nothing but African Americans. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so it's a very different kind of urban landscape. It's a little difficult to explain uh, yeah. without pictures, but it's a very different physical landscape that does shape relations um, in, a, in, in a way that you don't see in Boston. Right. So let's talk about your second book. Um, during the time of its publication, you um, moved from Princeton to the great University of Chicago, then, as we've mentioned, the Citadel of Research on Urban Poverty. Now, that book is Unanticipated Gains, Origins of Network Inequality in Everyday Life. Now, this study is not solely about poverty, nor is it focused on Chicago. Um, Unanticipated Gains is about the networks that develop among New York City mothers whose children were enrolled in daycare centers. What does your study of mothers at daycares tell us about how social capital, um, this is defined simplistically as the social glue that brings people together, um, how does it operate across social class? Uh, Could you say more about what that study was about? Yeah. 
So that study was very much a look at how networks uh, matter. And uh, the, the big insight of that book is the following. So everybody has an intuition that your connections make a difference. Uh, we kind of all know that business schools and uh, professional schools of all sorts sort of impart that idea into students repeatedly. Uh, and we also know that our networks matter not just for things like professional development, but also for our well-being, right? In the pandemic, one of the things that we all experienced firsthand is that being isolated from our networks was very, very mentally tough. There's a lot of uh, depression induced by isolation, and so, uh, which was not surprising. Uh, networks matter to our everyday uh, feeling of belonging, to our sense of safety, to our mental health, uh, to our ability to weather something like a pandemic, right? When you need money, uh, resources, support, you name it. And um, in this study, what I argue, based on what I found, is that we have been ignoring the fact that it's not just the case that the that we don't just make our networks whole cloth. We don't just go around being friendly and connect to people. We make our networks in the routine organizations we participate in in the childcare centers we drop our kids off, in the schools we take our kids to, in the university campuses we go to work in, in the law firms we work in, in the construction sites we participate in, right? In the garage shops we fix cars in. We form our networks primarily as a result of the organizations we participate in. And what's even more important is that those organizations aren't just a site, it's not just a place. They end up structuring the nature of our networks. And that second part was extremely important to the project. So um, both in terms of uh, how we're supposed to interact with one another, but also the expectations of behavior and trust and so on are very much shaped by the organization. So, you know, I'll just give you some, some really simple examples to make this clear. Um, right now, uh, if a student comes to me uh, and asks me for a favor, uh, how much I'm likely to do it will depend on whether that student is a Columbia University student. If they're from another institution, I, I will for sure be polite. Um, and I'll try to help to the extent I can. But if I don't have the time, it's just not going to happen. Whereas if uh, they're from Colombia, because of the expectations set by the university, of course I'm going to do it. But that's not just because I'm a faculty member and I'm supposed to, and of course that'll happen. But that wouldn't even happen, even if that weren't my job. So let's say uh, uh, an accountant contacts me and ask me for something, some advice on how professors think about problem A, B, or C. Again, if it's a person in an institution I'm not affiliated with, if I help them, it'll only be because I had the time. Whereas if a Columbia accountant sends me that email, I'm far more likely to do it. And it doesn't have to be anything involving my work. If somebody from the Columbia Medical School says, hey, Professor Small, uh, we're trying to understand how somebody did A, B, and C. It's not your work, but could you help us? I'm going to say yes. 
And so the institution, among the many things it does, is first, of course, it sets expectations about behavior, which we feel you know, compelled to follow. But then separately from that, it creates an institutional affiliation that ends up altering how much we are willing to do for other members and how much we are willing to do for other members in our network is part of how our networks carry social capital. And so um, it's very difficult to understand, really, the extent to which your networks matter to you and the extent to which they have an impact on your behavior and your well-being and so on without understanding the institutions in which people are forming their social capital. So um, after having been at Chicago and being dean there, you actually returned to Cambridge, Massachusetts. Yes. Uh, uh, back to Harvard, not as a graduate student, of course, <laughs> but as a professor. Yeah. Um, and it's there where your next book appears. It seems as every time you like you move, there's a book coming out. I don't know <laughs> if there's a correlation or not, or it's totally probably by accident or yeah. incident that this happens. But the book is someone to talk to, how networks matter in practice. Um, tell our listeners what this book is about. Yeah, so this is a book... Uh, where um, I probed something I had already I had discovered in the previous book, interviewing the mothers. So for the book on how mothers' networks were altered by enrolling their children in their childcare centers, I discovered that um, a lot of what we and a lot of what I had read about trust and and the factors affecting whether people are willing to trust others didn't seem to hold. So uh, many people were, seemed totally willing to leave their kids with people they didn't really know that well, even strangers almost, um, if, if their context was right and the institutional affiliations were there. And I found this, I did, had no kids at the time, and I, and I was surprised by this because the models of trust that I had read, particularly from a rational actor perspective, assume that um, whether you trust somebody is essentially a function of a couple of ratios. Um, what you get from being right and what you suffer from being wrong and the probability that you're right and the probability that you're wrong. And um, if you ask uh, some mother you've never met before but is in your kid's classroom, or someone at the airport uh, uh, sitting or standing near a gate and you need to go to the bathroom to take care of your kid, the gain is, yeah, you get somebody to take care of your kid for a couple of hours, but the loss is they take your kid or they screw up or your kid gets hurt. I mean, the losses are huge. And you have no way of assessing the probabilities of being right and wrong um, beyond impressionistic things you might get about the context. And so I thought this was really interesting and intriguing, and I decided to probe it further. And what I did was I, wrote, I began a project where I tried to find the simplest thing that people could do or get from others in their network, and that is to get them to listen. And so I tried probing when people had deeply personal, difficult, sensitive things to vent about, to talk about, how did they decide whom to talk to? And 
um, uh, and particularly under what circumstances they're willing to talk to or turn to people they don't know that well for something that's deeply personal. And what I found was that that was kind of the wrong way to ask the question because the truth is, even though just about everybody will say they're careful to not trust too much and they would only confide in a small number of people and blah, 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 if you actually reconstruct people's experiences as they report them, uh, people are far more likely to confide deeply personal things to people they don't know that well than they're willing to say about themselves. It's actually quite remarkable. Right, right. So this is very interesting. Um, I want to turn a bit and uh, get your thoughts about methods. Mm. Um, how do you go about approaching the study of, of sociology? Now, your work has incorporated both quantitative and qualitative approaches from number crunching of large data sets to the use of ethnography interviews and case studies. You've raised questions about qualitative social science research by highlighting its limitations when compared to quantitative approaches. Indeed, your forthcoming co-authored book titled Qualitative Literacy, a Guide to Evaluating Ethnographic and Interview Research, offers advice for assessing qualitative research. So why do you think sociologists and qualitative social scientists more generally need to establish rigor when conducting qualitative research? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I, I think this is extreme, extremely important to science. So the term qualitative research is used to describe a lot of very different things. Uh, and some of it is nothing to do with science at all. So a lot of humanistic research uh, is qualitative research, and it can be done well or it can be done poorly, and it's important that it be done well. But what I'm talking about specifically is the importance of doing qualitative research uh, for questions that have social scientific import. And the reason I spend so much time thinking and writing about this is that I have become convinced that many of the people who share that goal producing qualitative work that is important to science are doing a lot of things that don't make any sense and that are actually going to improve the quality of their work. And what do I mean by that? Um, there are a lot of times, for example, when people doing in-depth interview research uh, where you do an interview and you talk at length to somebody in an open-ended way about a whole bunch of topics, uh, very, uh, often very casually, but typically within the confines of a topic you want to understand better. Um, a lot of people worry that their work isn't going to be taken seriously as science because it's qualitative. And so what they do is they try to do things that make it sound or appear more scientific. Uh, the, the great physicist Richard Feynman had a, a great passage. Uh, he has a great essay on Cargo called Science where he argues uh, against this idea. But there's a version of this in the social sciences where people will do things like, well, they're going to try to, you know, randomly sample uh, people for their interview study, even though they're only targeting 60 people. And those 60 people are not going to get the same questionnaire. They're all going to have you're going to have 60 different conversations with them. And even if you, quote-unquote, randomly target 60 people, uh, 
you're not going to get 60 responses. You're going to have to try to reach 100 people to get 60 people to go to an interview. And if you're good and lucky, and um, and you're not going to have information enough on who uh, said no to make any inferences about how representative your group is of the people you called. And even if you did, and if you were somehow selected a sampling frame where you, everybody was selected with known probability and you produced weights, there's nothing to wait because the interviews are qualitative. Um, a lot of practices that seem popular, particularly among budding scientists, are not really going to improve the quality of their qualitative work. And a lot of what I've been doing uh, is two things. First, showing that that's just not going to give you what you think it's going to give you, but then showing you what you really should be looking at uh, when you're doing qualitative work. The purpose of qualitative work and the purpose of different kinds of qualitative work and the purpose of different kinds of uh, quantitative work are just very different. So I'll just give you an example. Um, as a social scientist, you can run an experiment, right, where you give people like psychologists do a treatment and you assign them to control and experimental groups. You can run a survey, right, like the, like the national surveys where you sample 2,000 people in the U.S. and you try to find out about what their political beliefs are about a particular issue, right? Or, alternatively, third, you can do what I did in my first book. You can go into a neighborhood and spend two years there observing everything and taking field notes every night and then studying those field notes and write a book about it, just the way anthropologists do, right? That's ethnography. You can interview people, right? So you can find 50 or 80 or 100 or whatever number of people there are and have very open-ended conversations about something you don't know very well. So, you know, my, my old friend Celeste Watkins Hayes found a couple hundred women uh, who, well, no, she found about 80 women uh, who are African-American who had been diagnosed HIV positive. And she just interviewed them because we didn't know that much about African-American women who are HIV positive. Broad interviews about every aspect of their lives. It's open-ended. That's the totally different method. The key is that each method is good at something very different. And so the way to do each method well is to maximize your probability of getting the thing that method is good for answered really, really well. So in an experiment, you need random assignment. In a survey, you need a large enough sample selected with known probability. Nobody's going to evaluate an experiment of whether you spend enough time in the field. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. That's not the purpose of an experiment, right? You're not going to evaluate a survey on whether there were enough open interview questions in there. That's not the point. In fact, in a survey, every single person needs to get exactly the same instrument with the same questions in the same order so that you can feel confident that your inferences are applicable to the broader population. By extension, you're not going to evaluate an ethnography on whether you know, um, there's it, an experiment in there. I mean, that just doesn't make any sense. You evaluate it on the basis of what ethnographies are good for, which is observing accurately people in their natural contexts. And so what you need to worry about is whether the ethnographic researcher accurately captured people in their natural context. And similarly, when you're evaluating an interview, you evaluate it on the basis of whether the interviewer effectively elicited um, 
important aspects of people's lives by getting people to trust you. And uh, a lot of what I've spent my time writing about is how to detect those things in qualitative research. How do you know that the ethnography was done really well? How do you know that the interviews are really done really well? Rather than um, trying to take your interview and turn it into a survey or something like that. I don't think that's going to work. Right. So lastly, I have a question for you. Um, I would like to ask about something astounding I found out about your transition from Cambridge um, to New York City. Your ability to quickly find school placements for your two young children when you arrived last fall. I have to tell you, most parents in New York City pull their hair out trying to find daycare and school spots for their kids. But you managed to do so with unusual speed, I'm told. So how, uh, for a scholar who wrote a prize-winning book that detailed the ins and outs of social networks and daycares in New York City, your rapid success verged on, um, let's say, inside trading? (laughs) How were you able to pull this off? So I'll say two things. First, it was extremely hard. (laughs) (laughs) It was still quick, right? Yeah, it was reasonably fast, but um, only fast in terms of number of weeks, slow in terms of number of hours I spent on it. Um, Two networks certainly played a role. We spent a lot of time asking about options and probing. And so here are the the role of networks um, mattering before as opposed to after you enroll your children in childcare centers. Um, And then third, we were helped, I'm sure, by the pandemic in an ironic way. Everybody had assumed that by the fall we'd be back to normal. I'm sure um, one or two parents um, changed their mind about returning to the city. And I, in fact, we know that um, we we got uh, two very last slots. Okay. So luck played a role as okay, well. Okay. <laughs> I, w- I was wondering if your next book was going to be Professor Small's Guide to Finding School Spots <laughs> in New York City. It would make a lot more money than the <laughs> other ones. <laughs> Thanks so much, Mario. This has been great. Thanks for stopping through the Dean's Table. I appreciate the opportunity, Fred. It's been a pleasure. The Dean's Table is produced by Eric Meyer with production assistance by Jack Riley. Our technical engineers are A.J. Mangone, Ariana Sullivan, and John Wepler. Our researchers are Emma Flattery and Angeline Lee. Our logo design is by Jessica Lillian. Episode portraits are by Kat Willett. And our theme music is by Imperial. I'm your host, Dean Harris. 